Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. Most of us have this exciting yet frustrating thing we call a career path. One day, we know what our calling is and how we're going to get there, only for us to break down and panic the next day. Careers are fascinating because we have to balance what we enjoy, what we're good at, what the world needs, and how we're going to pay the bills. As you go through your 20s, you'll make many career decisions. Go broad or narrow in. Take a chance on this new opportunity or stay the course. Luckily, there are amazing mentors out there helping us figure this all out, and one of them is my guest today. Mark Hirschberg is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. And if you know anything about my show, you know I love the topic of this book, which gets into career planning, interviewing, managing, networking, negotiating, and more. If you don't have a good idea on what your career path is, listen to this episode as Mark will share questions to ask yourself to gain more clarity on where you're going with your career and how to create a plan to get there. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the MIT professor, ballroom dancer, owner of over 250 shot glasses, Mark Hirschberg. Author of the Career Toolkit, uh, you helped create MIT's undergraduate practice opportunities program, ballroom dancer, truck criminals, and terrorists on the dark web. You are an interesting character. Really excited to kind of jump into a little bit of your story. You dedicated your book to your parents. Um, your dad was a doctor, your mom was a teacher, and you um, mentioned that they were the ones that taught you the value of learning. How did they go about encouraging learning for you? Well, I think I got lucky having somewhat typical Jewish parents. And in the Jewish culture, learning is so important. They would always emphasize doing activities. We'd go out to museums. We'd go to other things where we learned. They encouraged learning. I remember even one time I got in trouble, I was grounded, but there was, so I couldn't watch TV, but there was an educational program on TV that I was planning to watch. And so they made an exception so I could see that and keep learning. I just couldn't go and watch the fun cartoons and other activities while I was grounded. So they always said learning is first, learning is important, and they would make sacrifices in their personal lives to make sure we'd continue to learn. Mm. Super cool. So as I mentioned, you, were, uh, you are a professor at MIT. You've been working with students for 20 years now, is that correct? I've been teaching there for 20 years, yes. And you decided to write your book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Really interesting. One of the quotes that you had in here is that most people had more training in how to tie their shoes than in many of their career skills. And your book uh, outlines a couple different career skills. I mean, you start with with um, career, which is broken down into career plan, working effectively, interviewing. Then you go into leadership and management, which is broken down into leadership, managing people and managing processes, and then interpersonal dynamics, which is communication, networking, negotiation, and ethics. Um, hopefully we'll have some time to get into networking, but I want to spend the majority of our time on career plan, just because I think my audience in particular, young adults have a lot of anxiety around where their career is headed. And I think you give a lot of great tactical advice on how to ease some of that anxiety. Um, so my first question though, is, um, maybe a bit of a paradox in your opinion, how much is your career path? serendipity versus planning? This is a, a common question. There are people who argue, oh, you can't plan your career. It just kind of happens to you. Let's think about any project you have ever worked on. If your boss said, here's a project and you're gonna do it over the next six months. And you said, okay, thanks. Yeah, listen, I'm not gonna bother giving you a project plan, a budget, a timeline. Like, I'm just gonna wing it. Do you think your boss is going to accept that? No, she's going to say, hey, look, give me some plan. Give me some milestones. Let's have some check-ins. Your career is longer than six months. It is decades. You absolutely need to have a plan. Now, we know when we do this project at work for six months, you create the plan, you create the timeline, 
it's never going to work out exactly. Something's going to happen. Maybe you get opportunities. More often our projects, we get setbacks. You might discover new things. The goalposts might even move. How many times have we been on our project and they say, listen, the CEO just made a new pronouncement and now we're, we're shifting our priorities. All these things happen and we adjust. Likewise, in our career, you want to create a plan and in doing so, you recognize you're going to adjust the plan. It's never going to work according to plan. You're going to have regular check-ins to revise, but you want to have that plan. If you're trying to get somewhere and you have a roadmap, you could still get lost along the way. But if you don't have a roadmap, the odds that you're going to get to where you want to go are pretty slim. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like this other quote that you had in here. Let me find it real quick. It says... Um, Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Don't worry if you don't have a clear plan. Trying to plan is, at the at times, more important than having one. So I think that kind of summarizes your thesis there that you're mentioning. Yeah, that quote is from Eisenhower. And really because the, the variant what we often hear is no plan ever survives contact with the enemy, right? When the military says, okay, we're going into battle, you're planning what's gonna happen. The enemy doesn't do exactly what you expect them to do. But that process of having all the plans and thinking about, well, what happens in this case? Why should we do this instead of that? What are the risks, the pros and cons? When life happens, when things get thrown at us, we can immediately say, okay, I'm going to adjust this way because I've thought through it. And I recognize maybe not this exact situation, but I've thought through enough similar situations. I have a sense of how to react, how to adjust, how to capitalize and make the most of this. So when you graduated college, how far out were you planning? Like, were you thinking a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, a decade from now? When did sense of ownership around your career path take place for you? It was a few years out. The moment it first hit me, I was at a company, I was at a startup company working as a software engineer, and I wasn't thinking much about my career. The CTO who I worked for, I was a software engineer at the time, left the company. He had a falling out with the other founders. And he said, hey, listen, I'm going to a new company. Why don't you come with me? I'm bringing a whole bunch of the engineers. Really like you, come with me. And the founders knew he was leaving, knew he was taking some people. And they said, look, we know he's probably offered you a job. We think you're great. Please stay here. And I had a decision to make. And I had no idea how to make this decision. What should I do? Should I stay or should I go? And then of course I realized I have more than two options. There are other companies as well. Okay, how do I evaluate all these? And that's when I started to ask the questions, what do I want? And it's not just about this job. I was a chess player growing up. In chess, you don't just think about, well, what if I just move this piece here? Or you have to think, well, how is my opponent gonna react? And you wanna think four or five moves ahead, 10 moves ahead if you're a grandmaster. Right? You want to plan ahead. And that's what we have to do in life. Don't just think about, well, this job offers more money. I guess I'll take that. But which job is going to set you up in the long term for more money, if that's your goal, or more responsibility? So you want to think a few moves ahead. And it was at this point they had the decision. They said, I need to create a process, a framework for thinking about where I'm trying to go and how to evaluate the options along the way to generate that path that I want. And if I remember right, you actually didn't take door number one or door number two. You didn't leave or stay. Uh, you actually left for a completely new um, job. Is this correct? I did because what I realized at that point, I wanted to move up into management. And so I realized both of these jobs, I liked the people, they were interesting, but they weren't going to help me expand on my skill set for where I wanted to go. And it wasn't just about the money for me, it was about this other potential and growth. And so when I added that into the evaluation metric, then these other options became better. So how did you ultimately get to the fact that you wanted to manage people? Did you ask yourself specific questions and that uncovered that piece for you? I thought about what I enjoyed doing. And I use the analogy of Legos. Now I'm an engineer and I grew up playing with Legos. Most of us have especially those of us who are engineers, we all love Legos. Hmm. So think for a moment to when you used to play with Legos and it was great and you'd build things and you'd have adventures. At a certain point, you stopped. Why did you stop 
playing with Legos. And for listeners, pause for a moment, pause this and think, why did I stop? Because this is an important question. Hopefully you had a moment to reflect. Now, why I stopped playing with Legos is because when I built spaceship number 63, it looked remarkably like spaceship number 62 and 61 and 60 and flying around the room and going to a space planet. Okay, well, that was just like what I did last week and the week before and it got repetitive. And so I wanted to shift to other types of challenges, other types of games and activities. And that's normal. It's also the reason we don't play shoots and ladders anymore or anything else. We change our preferences. And so I love being a software engineer. It's like Legos. You get to construct things and say, look at this software I created. I composed these units and created something awesome. But I was finding for me, the software was getting a little repetitive. It's okay, right, I'm gonna build another user management system over here, another logging system over there, and I have to make the data flow this way. The challenges that you get managing people, it's a lot more unique because there are just infinite ways that people can come together and create problems typically. And so how you deal with that, how you address it, I found much more interesting and those were the types of challenges that I wanted to deal with, the people and the big picture strategy. Yeah, that's probably like five people bringing all their own individual Lego sets together and smashing them. And then you have to solve how to get them all back together. <laughs> Much more and complex. Keep them from crying and make sure <laughs> the other two stop fighting. Yes. My mom is actually, um, we have a giant tub of Legos at my house. And my mom pulled those out a couple of weeks ago and she's building all of the sets of Legos that, that she can. And we're, she's getting down to the point now where she's missing pieces for certain sets. Like we have like 60 books and she's maybe 30 books in and she has like half of sets built. I think she has to go online now and, and order a couple pieces. Um, I think there, you can like individually buy pieces uh, to finish sets now, but yeah, that, that totally sparked that <laughs> in my head. <laughs> so, um, so with that in mind, how do you evaluate the fact that you might just be you might have some detrimental um, effects of like short-term gratification. Like I'm just bored um, versus like, this isn't really the right fit for me long-term. So for example, my own career, I started off in quality assurance um, and then I moved broader into operations. And then I spent, um, I moved into a client facing role and a vendor relationship role, jumped back into operations and then scratched that industry entirely. And now I'm doing recruiting work. I often think about, Am I, am I spending my twenties exploring or was I just, was I just bored or thought the grass was greener on the other side situation? Probably you were exploring. There's a good book by David Epstein called range. And in the book, he talks about having a diverse set of skills and that actually a strategy for success is early on in college, in our twenties, we actually do that exploration. We try a whole bunch of different things to see what fits. I often tell my students when they're saying, what should I do for an internship? I'm not sure, do I wanna to go to Wall Street? Do I wanna to go to big tech? Do I wanna do a startup? So whichever one you like least, try that one first. Mm. Because if you do, if you say, all right, I'm gonna try Wall Street. Oh yeah, I, I hate that. Great, you spent a summer doing it and now you're certain. You're not gonna be 28 and saying, oh, maybe I should have done Wall Street because it's a lot harder later in life to kind of do that transition. And that's both because internships aren't as common, although they should be, but also when you're, when you're 23, when you're 25, you're still looking at mostly entry-level jobs. And so whether you're competing against someone who has two years of experience versus one or three, it's not as much of a difference. Once you're in your 30s and 40s, and there you have 10 years of experience in an area, they start to say, well, look, we're competing against other candidates who have 10 years of experience in a different area. And that starts to really be different. So you start to solidify where you are. In your 20s, that's a great time to explore. So, so I think you're circling around this other paradox of becoming a deep expert versus developing a wide range of skills. When do you think is the appropriate time to do both? 
well, always, I think, is the appropriate time to do both. It's just a question of how much of, of each one. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess my, my question was, when is the right time to do one versus the other? <laughs> it's a strategic decision that you need to make. So you might say, look, I am passionate about a certain area. And that might be you're passionate about doing uh, breast cancer surgeries. You know what? Do that and be the expert in that. Because frankly, if I have to go for that type of surgery or someone I love most likely would go for that type of surgery, I want that deep expert. I want someone who does it in her sleep and can just do this reliably. We think about certain professions, obviously in music or in sports, you want the deep expert, right? You want someone, Yo-Yo Ma, you want a cello player? <laughs> you want Yo-Yo Ma. Right? We don't know if Yo-Yo Ma is good at having a social media presence or anything else, but he knows how to play cello. And so if you want to be an expert, maybe not just a marketer, but you're going to be the expert on TikTok marketing. Great. Stand out, be that expert. Because when someone is looking for a TikTok marketer, why are you going to hire person 17 when there are 16 better people you can choose from? So if you want to focus on a very narrow area, you want to be that really deep expert. If, however, you want to take a wider set. So in my case, I wanted to be a CTO. To be a CTO, it wasn't about being the best software engineer. In fact, my ability to write code has gone down over time because I don't write as much. But to be a CTO, I also had to understand how to hire people, how to manage people, how to work with the marketing, the finance, the sales teams. I have to go on sales calls sometimes. I need to know how to present myself in front of customers. I need to know all these other skills in addition to writing code. And so I had to broaden my skill set. And so there are engineers that are much better coders than I am. They're not as good at creating a budget, working on strategy, going in front of a customer. So I've traded off in that case because the type of role that I want is a role where breadth actually pays off more. Hmm. So how'd you go about developing all those different skill sets. I know you mentioned in the book somewhere that one of the best opportunities you got was the opportunity to interview people. And at that time, your boss, when your boss asked you, your only experience was, you know, being a candidate and interviewing yourself, you know, leading, interviewing, managing people. How do you start to develop these skills and still be a productive employee at your, at your company that you're working at as a software engineer? Yeah, we should circle back to the interview one because that's a, a really important point. But in general, I said, okay, I'm a software engineer right now. And what do I want to do? I want to be a CTO. What are the skills that a CTO needs to have? And so I kind of looked at job descriptions. I talked to people. I thought about it a bit. These days, there's a lot more articles on what does a CTO do? You can reach out to your alumni networks. There's probably someone from your university who's in the role you're interested in, you reach out and say, hi, look, I'm a recent grad. One day I want to be where you are. Can we just chat for 30 minutes? Most alumni would be happy to respond to that. And so you want to find out not just what's in the written job description, but also other skills. So for example, none of the job descriptions for CTO say have a strong network. And yet having a strong network helps you attract candidates, helps you find jobs, helps you even just figure out, here's a challenge I haven't faced before. Can I use my network to help solve this? Mm. So having a strong network is an important skill an executive should have, but it's never listed in any job description. So there will be the written and unwritten rules. And you want to come up with these. Now, then when I realized, okay, here's all the things I had to learn, I wasn't going to learn it all tomorrow. Right? I always give the analogy, you don't say January 1st, I'm going to quit smoking, eat better, wake up early, go to the gym, you know, do all these things at once. That's way too much. Instead, what do you do? You say, I'm going to work on quitting smoking and I'm going to be miserable for a few months. I'm probably going to eat a lot more and drink more to compensate. But after a few months, okay, now you quit smoking. Now it's become the habit, the habit of not smoking. Now you can move on and focus your energies elsewhere. So you're going to have a long list and that's okay. And this is where you want to use that planning to say, what am I doing this year? What am I doing two to three years out? What am I not going to worry about for five years? I'll get to that later. Right. And so you can create that prioritization plan. 
So how formal was that when you were doing that? Once you identified that you wanted to be a CEO, you identified the skills. Did you literally write out some of those skills? And then I, I guess you used your career plan, the short-term plan, intermediate plan, long-term plan, vision, and you put them in there and you know figured out a game plan on how to move forward on each one of those skills? I didn't have it formally written out. It was in my case about 15 or so skills that I just could mentally keep track of and recognize, okay, what well, am I working on this year? Yeah, I'll get to these down the road. And of course I would adjust. So marketing was an area where I said, I want to understand marketing better. I knew I'm going to do this down the road. I don't know how I'm going to do it. This is, you know, the five years out plan. What happened is I kind of achieved the other skills. And I got closer to that. One day I saw a job at a company that was a marketing company. Oh, great. Okay. Guess I'm going to start working on marketing now. And so I joined that company and started to develop myself in parallel. I also said, well, this is a good time to start reading marketing books, taking an online marketing class, but the opportunity, it needs to be a little fluid. This is what we talked about that your plan's not specific. When this opportunity came up, I said, I'm going to adjust the plan to capitalize on what I see now. Hmm. So how much of your learning was hands-on versus hands-off? And how did you do the hands-off learning? You mentioned books. Um, what else have you done to accelerate some of those skill sets outside of just the formal projects at work? This will vary by person. Some of us are much more want to read books or listen or learn that way. Others are more hands-on. I tend to be the former. I'm very academic in nature. Reading books, I'm able to internalize a lot and process it and adapt it. For other people, you might just have to be more engaged. I always tell people volunteering is a great way to build mm -hmm. up new skills. Organizations like Taproot, taproot.org, we can all make sandwiches equally well in a soup kitchen, but you can do things. Maybe you're a graphic designer. Maybe you're a copywriter. You can do things I can't do as well. And if you're trying to get more experience in that field or shift into it, volunteer for a group like Taproot where they help other nonprofits with big projects like redoing a website, redoing their fundraising plan, you can now apply these skills and get some hands-on work. And you're volunteering at a nonprofit, they don't care if you're the best or not, they're happy for the help. And so that's a good way to get experience. So you said it's Taproot? Taproot, T-A-P-R-O-O-T. And that's like Fiverr, but connecting people that wanna volunteer with people who need volunteers in a specific area? Yes. So nonprofits say we have a project. So it's not just, oh, want to show up and do this today. It's we have this project, say redoing our website. And Taproot will say, okay, we're going to find you. Some people know how to code. Some people can create the copy. Some people can create the graphic designs, a project manager to run it all and create this team that will do a project. And this project can go on your resume. And during interviews, you can say, oh, well, let me give you an example. I was on such and such project. So you gain real experience. But I would say important, no matter how you're approaching this, is to create a peer learning group. At the start, you mentioned the different chapters. The chapters are many of these skills. And it's important to distinguish between knowledge. Knowledge might be how to learn a new coding language, knowledge of how to do marketing, versus skills like communication, negotiation, leadership. These skills can't just be transferred by knowledge. It helps to read books. It helps to listen to podcasts like this. But whereas you can say, okay, TikTok marketing, remember, you know, keep your videos to do this. Make sure you have good lighting. Just check, 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 knowledge. Leading, there's no formula. There's no do these three things and you're leading. So the best way to learn, the way we teach this in the course at MIT, the way business schools have taught this for decades, you want to create peer learning groups. Now there's a free download on my website for how you can do this in your organization. So you can go to your company, find other people and create a peer group where you're all going to learn this together. If you can't do it within your company, you can set it up yourself. You can get your friends, you can create a local meetup group. But what you want to do is you want to say, we're going to look at a topic, let's say leadership, and we're going to discuss it, the six of us. How would you handle this situation? Oh, that's very interesting because I would have done it this way. Okay, that's very different, but now I have a wider perspective. Maybe I can incorporate some of what I learned from you 
maybe it's not right for me, but even just being aware of it, I'm going to recognize that leadership style in other people. And so it's having these discussions. Now you can use my book. I break down how you can use my book for it, but you don't have to use my book. You can use any of the other books I list on the website, any other books on these topics that you like. You can use blog posts. You can use podcasts like this one. A great thing to do, given the topics you cover, is create that peer learning group, listen to one of these podcast episodes, discuss that with your peer learning group. Because the important point is that you don't just say, okay, I heard the episode, I read the chapter, I got the knowledge. It's in that discussion that you really broaden your understanding. In your experience, is there a good number for a peer group in terms of people that participate? There's different ways to do it. Ideally, you're going to be in a group of somewhere around six to 10 people because it's small enough that you can do that discussion. You're going to get a variety of people, but everyone can still speak without talking over each other. And you can also do this, of course, even on Zoom if we're doing it while COVID is still out there. I, in the description, the free download, I explain how you can do this at larger levels. You can do this in a group of 20 or 40 people. You can do it in groups of 100. But whereas in a group of six people, it's just, okay, we're all here. We're all just talking. If you have a group of 40 people, you're going to need someone to moderate. Mm. If you're doing a group of 100 people, you might need to pre-feed the questions and examples and topics. So you're going to have to be a little more structured on the larger scale. So there's different ways to do it depending on how you want to approach it. That's fair. Something else I think you mentioned in the book, I I, I don't know if it was explicit or not, but noticing someone that's really good at something you want to get good at and then breaking down how they've done that. Do you have a story or example of how you did that in your career? It began with one of my first bosses, John Christensen. It's back when I was at Painted Word. And he was so good at using the whiteboard. Most people would just go up to the whiteboard and just scribble things on there. But he always, it always seemed organized and well done. And I specifically watched what did he do. And I noticed that he seemed to lay things out on the whiteboard. He didn't just go, okay, I'm going right to the middle. He would think about what am I going to put on the whiteboard at the end? Okay, great. So I want to start here on the left-hand side so I have space, right? He's thinking a few moves ahead. He used different colors. Most of us, we pick up a pen, we just use the pen and that's it. But he was conscious of using different colors. All I had to do was say, oh, I noticed he's using different colors. That's one of the things I like. Okay, I'm gonna be explicit in my use of colors. And then I would think about maybe I draw the current state in one color and the changes in a different color. Or I list pauses in one color, negatives in another but I was just more explicit. This isn't rocket science. Everyone's saying, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of makes sense. Pros and cons, right? We do like a green red, but we don't explicitly do it. It's not conscious. And so when we start to be conscious of it and say, here's something we can do, we start to build that habit, build that muscle memory, and then it becomes unconscious. There's a learning model that begins with unconsciously unknowing to consciously unknowing consciously knowing, and then unconsciously knowing. What does this mean? Think about driving. When you were three years old, you didn't even think about driving. That didn't exist to you. When you were eight, you said, okay, I know what driving is, and I know I don't know how to drive. At 16, you learned how to drive, but it took a lot of effort. Right? You say, okay, don't distract me. Hands tend to be very careful, triple check everything. But then at 26, you're saying, yeah, okay, you know, let's turn on the radio, have a conversation. Driving doesn't take your full attention because you went to that conscious, consciously knowing at 16, all right, I know how to do this, but I have to focus to that unconscious knowing at 26. I just get in the car and drive. Same thing in this case with whiteboards. I had to be conscious once I recognized it, didn't know I didn't know it at first, realized I didn't know it when I saw someone do it well became conscious about, okay, make sure I use different pens and colors to then at the end, okay, now I just naturally do it. Many people go through this with public speaking. When you see a good public speaker, what does the speaker do when you break down? I like his hand gestures. I like how she uses her space or varies her tone. 
I like how he engages the audience with questions. You make that note and incorporate it into your own speech. Hmm. That was super interesting. And now that I'm thinking about podcasting in that sense, like researching you. One reason I really enjoy doing a lot of research on people that have been on a ton of different shows is that I start to know you as a guest and what capabilities you have. And then it's really interesting to see how hosts bring out those different capabilities within inside of you or what stories or what question they ask or how they get to this certain thing. And it's really fascinating. And then I start taking mental notes on, oh, I really like how they did that. <laughs> but when I first started podcasting, or even before I started podcasting, I listened to podcasts, I knew who I liked, but I had no idea why I liked them and what they did well <laughs> around podcasting. But listening, my experience of listening to Tim Ferriss is totally different. Now that I'm 35 episodes deep into um, creating my own podcast versus just being consumer before I ever started anything. This ties into what we were talking about earlier with interviewing. Now you mentioned before my boss early on said, oh, we have a candidate, go interview him. That was it, no training in interviewing. But he knew I had been on interviews. I'd been a candidate before. And so I sat there, I asked a few questions that I had heard before. I just said, okay, I guess this is what we do. I'm just gonna repeat what I've seen. And most people, this is how they do it. And when they walk out and you say, what do you think of the candidate? They say, oh yeah, I, I liked him. Yeah, she was smart or not a fit or whatever. And that's and they have this kind of generic overall sense. But you really want to drill down on that. Why do you like this person? There's a, a challenge that sometimes we like people who look like ourselves and look like not just physically, but yeah. similar values, similar backgrounds. There's the, well, this is someone I'd like to have a beer with. And that's great. And certainly you'd rather have coworkers you'd like to have a beer with, but that might not be sufficient. And you don't want that to cloud your judgment for, are they the best person for this job? So you want to be really conscious about what is it we're looking for? We want someone smart. Okay, what does that mean? Let's break down. Is it smart about deep knowledge? Smart about good, just raw problem solving skills? smart about being clever and innovative. Those are different types of smarts. Communication, I see us in so many job descriptions. Strong communication skills. That means writing good emails, public speaker, speaking to people internally, speaking to other groups internally that have different backgrounds and contacts, speaking to customers. They don't break this down because frankly, they don't even know what they want. They just think, oh, communication skills, that's important. So we as interviewers, want to be conscious. And this is what I talked about in the interviewing chapter. I spend most of the chapter looking at from the hiring manager side. Most of us at some point will be on that side of the table hiring, but we've had no training. I meet executives who have had no training. Going back to that quote you said at the start, they spent more time learning how to tie their shoes when they were five than how to interview people over a 30 year career. So spending just a little time being more conscious about it makes them more effective. Now, of course, as a candidate, what you alluded to, the best thing to happen to me was being that interviewer because I realized when I had two candidates, I said, well, I like this candidate more. I know the other one's smarter. The other one was from MIT. He was definitely smarter and hey, I'm an MIT alum. I should kind of have a bias here. I like that other candidate more. Why is that? And that's where I started to break down to understand what am I looking for? What am I liking and not liking? Is this the right thing? And so as a candidate, once we understand what the hiring manager is looking for, we are so much more effective as candidates. So everyone, even if you have never hired anyone before, ask if you can sit in on some interviews or do a mock interview and then listen to yourself or have your friends do a mock interview and listen in on that. You learn so much listening to other people interview. Hmm. How much runway do you, uh, being a CTO, I'm assuming that you have now trained people how to interview as well. You probably had people underneath you. How much runway do you give them with learning it on their own versus, all right, now I'm going to start helping direct their learning path so they can get to become a proficient interviewer? I'll start out by doing some basic training. I have a standard, here's my one hour talk on how to interview. And that alone, just already you're upping the game, 
right? When you're going from zero to non-zero, that's already a huge improvement. And then I'll tend to mix people up and I'll often have pair interviews where it's two people interviewing at once. So they can learn each other's styles and learn from each other. Mm. And that can create some rapid learning. How much I spend on helping them along, uh, probably not as much as I should. And that's just a function of everything else that I have to do and be focused on. Sure. The, the pair interviewing is a great idea as well. I've picked up so much with interviewing with somebody else. You know, you do four or five different people that you interview with consistently. You see the things that you really like about their interviewing style and the things that you don't think work as well or doesn't fit how you would interview. That's a really good idea. I never even thought about that. So um, going back to the job or the career path piece to it, what are some questions that people can ask themselves if they have no idea what their ultimate goal is? If they don't have the, I want to be the C I want to be a CTO. And they're like, I don't really know. I can't really make a plan because I don't know what the long-term vision is. What are some questions they can ask themselves today? And it's okay not to have that specific job title. It's also okay to have that specific job title and 10 years down the road, change it and realize you want something else. This is your plan. You don't have to stick to it if it doesn't work for you. I start with about 20 questions. And these are just some questions. You can add your own. You don't have to do all of them. And these questions, they're in chapter one. They're also a free download on the website. These are questions that begin with, what do you want out of life? Right? Think, think ahead 40 some years. Where do you want to be? What does your life look like? That might include family plans. It might include where you want to live, your lifestyle. If you want to be fishing on the weekends or heading out at 5 p.m. to do happy hours with your friends, law might not be the right career for you because famously big law says you're working 80, 90 hour weeks and you're working nights and weekends. So you have to figure out, is this going to fit your lifestyle? And so you can start by asking these questions. You don't have to have answers to all of them. You might even just have some ideas. Well, I know I don't want to be customer facing. I'm an introvert. I don't want to have to go out and meet lots of new people. It's not for me. Great. We've eliminated some options. You want something where you can work with the same people over time. So it might not be a title, but it's going to start steering you in a direction. And once you start to say, I want more of this, less of that, certain aspects of the job, certain things you're going to be doing, start asking people, hey, what do you think? What jobs might have this? Or tell me about your job. What's your job like? And hear if it resonates with the things that you're interested in or not. Yeah, it's, it's a great exercise. I did that last year in December. I took a seven-month sabbatical and I ran into a recruiter that gave me a list of similar questions. And it was a really great idea for me Every day, I just went through those questions and wrote down a few more notes. Then I started seeing some of the similarities between them, pulled all of them out, um, and then went backwards. Once again, found my dream, my dream careers, went to LinkedIn and just searched who might have some of those titles, asked for an informational interview with them, uh, got a better feel for what, what the job actually entailed. And then just worked backwards once I, I highlighted what I wanted to do, worked backwards, figured out where they started and went looking for those jobs. Yeah, that working backwards is such a strong technique, but we only tend to think forwards. We think of our projects moving forward. Sometimes it's helpful to move from the, from the end result and work backwards because that's a much more narrow space. Mm, definitely. Well, I want to ask you a few questions on networking. So let's let's flip um, the conversation here a little bit. First, how do you get 250 people into a private nightclub in New York City? This was a bit of luck. So this goes back to 2007, I think. And there was a private social network called A Small World. This was invite only, super exclusive. I heard about because I was interviewing for the CTO role. And the way the CEO described the company, it sounds like you're partying with the Illuminati. This sounded way too snobby for me, but I thought, eh, let me just check it out. 
So I called up a friend of mine who I knew would be a member. I said, hey, can you send me an invite? And so she invited me. I thought, I'm just going to do one event. Let me just meet these folks again. They're probably all going to sound like snobs, but whatever. So I saw that a couple people, there was a, a discussion forum. And people regularly had events like, oh, let's meet for drinks or let's do a dinner party. I saw a couple people were saying, I'm going to be in New York City on this weekend. What's going on? So I wrote, oh, people are going to be in town. Let's just meet for drinks and thought I would get you know, 10 people. We'd all meet at some bar. Well, 10 people responded within a matter of minutes. And then within about a day, it was 50 people. And within a week or so, it was 250 people. Now, if you know New York City, where do you put 250 people? Most bars don't have capacity for 250 people, let alone with all, all the other patrons. And so I was a little worried, thinking, I don't know what to do. Thankfully, uh, a, a very clever club owner who happened to be also in this group said, oh, you know what? Uh, I know you don't have a space. I'm a fractional owner in this club. So why don't you all come to my club? In fact, we'll open it up an hour early and just do a private event for us. From his perspective, he just got 250 people to show up at the start of his club Saturday night. And that's a huge win for him. For me, okay, great, you just solved my problem. Where do I put 250 people? Now I showed up, remember I had just joined this club you know, a couple of weeks before, I just joined the social network. So I didn't really know many people. But I was the guy organizing this awesome party. Everyone that night wanted to meet me. Everyone said, oh, Mark, yeah, he's got to be super connected, super interesting. Look what he pulled off. And this is why a great technique for networking is organizing events. Because when you organize events, you can reach out to people. Even if they don't know you personally, they know who you are because your name is up there somewhere on the invite and they become aware of you. I am a big fan of organizing events as a way to expand your network and to stay top of mind with people in your network. Mm. Yeah, that's genius. And I think that goes to illustrate that you don't need a huge budget or a fancy home to put on a great event. You don't even have to know a club owner. I think laying out a blanket in the middle of the park and bringing some cheese and wine is more than acceptable in terms of hosting an event, but being the one that organizes it comes with so much power and authority in the least disgusting way. Um, I, I think if you are on the forefront of that and you're bringing together like-minded individuals or being the one that's connecting interesting people, I think that goes a huge way in being, being a networker. Keith Harazi, in his great book on networking called Never Eat okay. Alone, talked about dinner parties. Now we think of dinner parties as you dress up, you bring out the best china, formal meals. He said, look, you can do that if you want, but especially in your 20s, you're probably not doing that. You know what, do it with paper plates and plastic cups. Do it buffet style. I used to co-host a dinner party with a friend of mine. We do buffet, everyone just brings some dish. By the way, if you do that, coordinate so you don't get seven <laughs> different desserts and only one main course. That doesn't everyone, sound like a problem though. <laughs> everyone just brings something. For my apartment, I'm in New York City in a one bedroom. So I don't have a large amount of room. I was talking with my friend, Olivia Fox Caban. She wrote a great book called The Charisma Myth, yeah. How to Develop Your Own Charisma. And we were talking, we were talking about Keith's book and saying, okay, let's do an event together. Well, right, we can do a dinner party, we can do buffet style. I felt, you know, I only have a few chairs and then not even that many couches. So how many seats do I have overall? Thought, well, what if we just did something where you could be standing? Maybe just do dessert, right? Because dessert, you eat standing up, you know, you hold the plate and the fork. Yeah, we could do not a dinner party, but just that. And I thought, you know what? Let's forget the food. Let's just do a wine and cheese party. This is the easiest party to do. In your 20s, you don't have to have a lot of money, wine and cheese party. So buy a couple bottles of wine, just so you have it to start. Buy a little bit of fruit, cheese, crackers, whatever. This whole thing's gonna cost you less than $100. Tell people to show up, make sure you have some cups, uh, <laughs> plastic cups. I've actually invested in, in glassware. You can get some cheap glassware that's about a buck a glass. 
works really well if you're going to do this regularly. But cups and a little bit of wine to start. People in your 20s know, okay, we're going to bring wine. We're going to show up with wine. And so everyone's going to bring a bottle. I've actually had parties where I wound up with more wine at the end than when we started. And so you didn't have to put a lot of effort into buying all this stuff. There's no prep time. People show up, they bring wine, make sure you have a wine opener, very important. And you're just hanging out talking and you don't have to worry about how much seating you have because people are standing, people will come and go. So in a New York City apartment, when it starts getting really crowded, people start to leave. When it's empty, people show up and stay. And so it self-regulates. And you can do this party really easily, low cost, low effort, and be the host of an event. What about when a young a young professional says, I don't have anything to offer my network? What, what would be your rebuttal there? Everyone has something to offer. I get this all the time from my students. They say, we're students. We have even less to offer than a young professional. There's a few reasons this isn't true. First, all of us have some skill or knowledge that is interesting to someone else. You might not know a lot in your particular field compared to your coworkers who have been doing it for 20 years, but compared to other people who have zero experience in your field, you know a lot more. That is interesting and valuable to someone. So we have to recognize this on a relative scale. And on a relative scale, we all have value. Then the second thing we bring is our networks themselves. It's not just us, it's everyone in our network. So to my students, I say, you know what? You've got access to other students. I think, well, sure, so do all the other students around me. Students are like water, they're everywhere. They're not that special. Well, not to you in that context of sitting on campus or not to you in the context of, well, I have a whole bunch of other people who are young and relatively inexperienced, but there's some company elsewhere that doesn't have access to your peer group doesn't have access to students in college, doesn't have access to people in your field, and your network to these people, that is valuable. I'll give an example that I, I list in the book. I was probably about 10, 12 years experience at the time, and I was chatting with one of my students. He said, yeah, I was at this company this summer, and given what you do, because he had heard my background, we probably could have used someone like you. What do you mean? So yeah, things are just chaotic and disorganized and really a mess. And with what you do, you really could have helped us be a lot more efficient, be a lot more organized, less mistakes and problems. I said, oh, well, you know, if you think I'd be helpful, can you introduce me to the CEO of the company? It was a relatively small company. Maybe he'll think I'm helpful as well. So he made that introduction. That got me a six month contract. This was a sophomore. This was an undergraduate student. He had no authority to hire me, but he had the ability to open the door and have the CEO give me some of his time. And that was extremely valuable. And that got me someone far more experienced than he was a job. So all of us have these abilities and all of us can bring something to our networks. That's such a cool story. When I read that, I was like, dang, mic drop. Like you can introduce someone like yourself to um, who is going to be your future employer. I felt, I, I'm sure he felt pretty proud of himself after that, didn't he? I will add an asterisk. I'm not going to give his name. <laughs> I will say he has gone on to create a billion dollar company. Wow. Good for him. Good for him. Well, Mark, this has been an awesome conversation. So people can, can find you, can find the book at thecareertoolkitbook.com. You have a companion app that's free as well. I downloaded it. It's super cool. It gives me a notification at 9 a.m. every morning and just a little tip that was in your book. So I, I really enjoy that, that you made that app to go along with it just as reinforcement for what I was learning while I was reading your book. Um, anywhere else that you would like to point people? I'd say that website is probably the best place to go because you can get that app and you can adjust the time for whenever it is. You could also just focus on a certain set of categories or you can open it up to say, oh, I have a networking event. Let me open it up, forget the daily tips, but I'm gonna go through and concentrate, get that crash course. What were those networking tips right before I walk in the room? So you can download the app from both app stores, but it's linked from the website. You can contact me. The resources page as well has the way to create these peer learning groups. 
links to other books and websites and tools to help you along your way in development. All of this at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Awesome. Well, my final question probably isn't going to work on you. Um, I'll give it to you and then I'll reframe it for you. Um, so I typically ask my guest at the end of, of a show, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you do it? <laughs> but you are like the pedestal of that question because you literally did that. So I'm going to pick a different topic for you. And I'd love to hear you riff on just a little bit of how you would go about teaching this topic. So in the book, you mentioned uh, you guys were talking about superpowers or you were writing about superpowers and interesting superpowers like flying or invisibility. And you said, one of the best powers that I've heard is the ability to see yourself as others see you. And I thought that was such an amazing power. If you had a class where the topic was being, uh, creating the ability to see yourself as others would see you, how would you go about teaching that? Yeah, and that I read from a book. I unfortunately didn't remember where I got it to give the correct attribution. I'm going to start by giving you a great technique from my friend, Dory Clark. She's written a whole bunch of great business books, such as Reinventing You. She said, here's what you can do. Go to your peers, go to your coworkers and say, if you could pick three words to describe me, what would they be? And you're going to hear a bunch of words from different people. And you're going to notice patterns, things people are saying, things people are not saying. That's a really easy way to start to get a sense of this. And then we can also think about how do we want to be perceived? What's the gap between the two and what things can we do to overcome that gap? If people don't see you a certain way, what are the behaviors? What are the attributes to be seen that way? And how can you start to engage in those behaviors and project those attributes? So that's how we teach that class. Mm. I knew you would have a good answer to that. <laughs> Mark, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the show, giving so much time. Um, I love the book, so highly encourage people to go check out the book. As another reminder, we'll be giving away a free copy of your book, so just tag me, tag Mark on Instagram, and um, we'll pick one winner before the next episode. So, Mark, it's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.